This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest wi-fi access for customers bt's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy whatever your business bt's got your back search bt's got your back hello this is the red box podcast i'm matt chorley it's for friday the labor party is packing its swimming chunks and heading to the beach for the party conference this weekend. So on today's episode of the podcast, we take a look at what can go wrong at party conferences. It's an absolute cracker. So that's coming up in just a set. But first, it's our columnist panel. It's Friday, so it must be Melanie Reed and James Forsyth. talk about things that can go wrong at party conferences and when things have gone wrong for you uh, at a moment but uh, James let's look ahead to uh, the party conferences and well, at least the politics of it all and uh, you've and there's been lots of talk about winter of discontent and you've you've sort of you've tackled this in your column in the Times today talking about the spectre of the 70s haunts the Tories and and this combination of rising uh, bills rising inflation uh, could could start to become a political problem yeah, if you, if you, there are some eerie parallels for the 70s. If, if, what drove the uh, inflation in the 70s was uh, the abandonment of a gold standard in 71 and the oil shock of 73, 74. The oil price went up by four times. Now, we've just seen the gas price go up more than fourfold in a year. And I mean, there are some parallels between all the QE and COVID stimulus that was done to keep the economy going during lockdown and the abandonment of the gold standard. And I mean, the worry for the Tory party is, you know, inflation is one of those things. Margaret Thatcher always used to say that, you know, governments could survive unemployment, but they couldn't survive high inflation because that affected everybody. That made everybody feel worse off. And I think that that is, that is the big worry for the Tories right now is that, you know, everyone at the moment is betting that, you know, the Bank of England said yesterday, we're going to keep um, interest rates where they are, because we're convinced that the current levels of inflation, the rising levels of inflation, they're transitory, they're just, they're just effectively uh, a product of turning the economy off and switching it back on again. Uh, and soon all of these issues will work themselves, work their way through the system. The danger is, if it's not transitory and we are moving into an era of higher inflation, that would be very politically difficult for the government. And you make the point that Boris Johnson, particularly uh, his favourite boast at the moment, is, is talking about how pay packets are getting bigger, but they could soon be eaten up quite quickly if um, inflation rises. 
Yeah, and, and I mean, this is, I think one of the biggest decisions the government has to take is what to do about HGV drivers, whether to basically add them to the skilled worker list and issue lots more visas for, for lorry drivers, because at the moment, the government are arguing, and, and they are not wrong about this point, that, you know, that Brexit has resulted in higher wages. Um, and the, the Boris Johnson argument is, that, you know, basically people are getting what they voted for. But the, the question is, you know, if you can't source enough lorry drivers, that becomes problematic. I think mean, you're seeing a big tension here, which is almost a kind of game of chicken between the government and the industry. The government's view is if you pay people enough, you know, there are lots of people in this country who have an HGV license who aren't driving an HGV. If, if the wages rise enough, you will be you will get enough lorry drivers uh, up against the industry, which is saying, hang on a second, we're not sure that we will. And also, have you thought through the consequences of if we're having to pay lorry drivers, you know, um, there's talk today of, of a salary of £78,000 being offered, you know, you know, what effect that has on prices. So I, th- I think we are in, in, in but I, think this, I think this is one of the biggest calls the government will make, because, at, you know, where, where does it go on this whole question of Brexit, wages and immigration? Uh, Melanie, how is this, because you're in Scotland, how is this playing out in Scotland? The, you know, whether it's the gas price uh, issue, the lorry driver issue. Is it is it a big political issue? Are people, who, and who, who's getting the political blame for it? Well, it's, it, that is a very interesting one. Obviously, the SNP will try and make it Westminster's problem. But um, it, 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 I think that it will come back. When it comes back down to that word, cost of living, you do tend to look at the government of the nearest possible government, don't you, to blame. So I think I think it is going to, to hurt the SNP, who are already having to bring in the army to drive ambulances. So it's, uh, it, I think it will add to that frailty uh, uh, around, uh, around power at the moment, if you like. I thought James's column was excellent because, it, it, you know, what it did was, was also highlight this, this thing about rebalancing of income differentials. In, in effect, what, what, what Johnson is saying is, you know, more for working people and, and less, less for, less for the, the people who live on dividends and profits. You know, it's that, it's, 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 it, it, it can be almost be seen as a fairly, uh, a fairly socialist thing to do, to, to, um, to turn it that way. And I, very, very interesting, um, balancing point coming up and the other thing i would like to say is that you two are children compared to me and, and <laughs> I, I that's very know, kind my, my youth is coming back to haunt me because i mean the cost of living it's such a retro expression but you know i i i grew up doing my exams by candlelight and my father had had an ammunition dump a petrol dump in the garage he had about sort of 50 gallons of of, of of petrol in there you know and, and we lived on it we lived on a on a on a bomb and you know it's that whole thing about then i went into the 80s and i was paying horrendous horrendous mortgage rates um so it, it we really we really don't want that to come around again please please um and you don't want it either so it, it's very it's a fascinating point in 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 our in our history I mean, this is one of the really crucial points that Melanie just made. You know, we've had a, we've had a decade now, over a decade, where the bank rate has been below one percent. So people who have a mortgage have been paying you know, very little in terms of interest. And you know, if you think back to to the to the eighties or to the early nineties, you know, interest rates used to go up by you know one two points at a time. No one is used to that happening now. And I think this is one of the big things: is if mortgage rates do go up, even to to levels that are historically low, 
I think lots of families with mortgages will suddenly feel a huge squeeze because they just have not been used to, uh, they've been used to their mortgage payments being very low. Uh, and so even just the, even if interest rates just tick up a bit, I think families will really feel that pinch. And how does, I mean, in a, to some extent, it's only really a problem for the government if Labour managed to uh, weaponise it successfully, uh, James. And so how, how can they do that? Because I'm, I'm slightly conscious that from most of sort of Ed Miliband's leadership, they spent the whole time tutting and saying, oh, you've seen the price of this. Uh, and it didn't really sort of ha- hit home. The, um, at the moment, the government is, is trying to say, well, this is all the fault of, well, obviously they're not blaming Brexit, but, you know, the force is beyond our control. Uh, how can the Labour Party exploit this politically to sort of hammer home their message that they would in some way be in a better position? I think that in some in one way it is more difficult for the Tories now than it was uh, when Emily Obama was Labour leader. When George Osborne used to argue that, you know, don't worry about these cost of living attacks because we can just turn cost of living into a tax issue. You know, who is going to tax you more? Who's going to leave you more of your own money to spend? That is obviously harder for the Tories now because they've had to just they've just had to raise national insurance um, in an attempt to try and deal with this NHS backlog issue and, and, and social care. And so that is more difficult. But I think you are right. You know, the, 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 but, I, but I will say this, I think empty shelves and petrol shortages are very bad news for any government. They just make the government look incompetent. If you think about how all-powerful Tony Blair was after his 1997 landslide the one time when the polls got bad for him was during the petrol protests when you couldn't fill up your car and i think that is the danger for the government the danger for the government is that if you get into a situation where people can't fill up their car whatever the deficiencies of keir starmer and labor people will just turn on the government do you think that that's uh many of you said that the SNP will try to blame uh boris johnson if people can't start, start you know possibly and obviously we should stress it's not a huge number of petrol stations at the moment with, which don't have enough, uh, which don't have uh, petrol. But um, could it become an issue for, for Nicola Sturgeon? Is there calls for her to do more on this, this lorry driver issue? Oh, well, yes. And, and again, do you remember there was a, a petrol driver's strike up here a few years ago? And uh, there was that same, as James was saying, that petrol shortage. And people get really cross when they can't fill their tanks up. And um, there was there was a lot. I don't think it was Sturgeon was in power then, but there was a lot of pressure on on the government to do something to persuade Ineos, um, who run, who who run the big Grangemouth plant, to uh, to settle the resolution, uh, to settle the the, the problem. And uh, yeah, I I think it will. I think uh, I do think it will. It won't. It won't. Um, it won't be good for the SNP. Yeah, we'll see. Although her, uh, Nicola Stone's ability to dodge all of that stuff is is quite remarkable um, in the past. Um, but you wanted to talk about the Riders' Cup. Now, sell this to me because I confess I'm not a massive golf fan. Well, it's it, it is an extraordinarily peculiar uh, esoteric circus. It's kind of a small war. This sort of rowdy madness. <laughs> uh, Rick Rick Broadbent has has written a lovely piece in the Times today describing it as a tribal treat and it's so true because it's you have these team of a very um selfish i mean sport golf is a very individual very selfish sport you get all these these guys play their, their personal glad their, their individual gladiators they're playing together they have to play as a team and basically most of the americans hate each other and um they, they, so they, they lose all their team spirit whereas the europeans 
band together and they play way above themselves and you get uh, you get peculiar you get gangs of grown men supporters wearing strange hats you, with european stars on them singing the ode to joy and <laughs> can and you explain you, you, the cheese hats why why are the why have the european teams been wearing cheese on their head be, it, be, it just just well that kind of that sums it up it's madness it's 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 really it, it's a sort of um i think they do it partly to taunt the americans because they get fed up with this you're the man get in the hole you know all this kind of these awful american <laughs> american golf supporters and, and all the bimbo wives the trophy wives that, that have to wear uniforms i mean it's awful it's it's hilarious it's um I, I, um, I, I, yeah, I, I mean, I'm not, I'm, I, well, I can't play golf now, but it, it, it is a, it is a little world in itself. It's, it's very amusing. James, maybe this is what you and I need when we go to the party conferences. We need to ha- hats, hats of cheese. Uh, I, I, I think I'm, I'm, I'm probably you than me, Matt. <laughs> I think you could pull it off, James. Uh, before I let, let you both go, what, what's the worst thing that happened to you when you've been away for work? Have either of you got a story you want to, you, you, you feel able to share with the, share with the class? <laughs> I, I was, um, I, I was once staying in a hotel. I was heavily pregnant and I was away on business, on work for the time, staying in a hotel and the fire alarm went off. And um, I was, I couldn't, because my ankles were swollen, I couldn't get my shoes on. And so I was standing heavily pregnant and barefoot out in the middle of the street in in the middle of winter. And I felt like a waif. It was, it was uh, most embarrassing. <laughs> I think we'll let you off with that. Anything, anything you want to share, James? Uh, my, my worst was, I remember one morning, the phone in my hotel room rang at kind of 7.15 and a voice, a voice said, are you coming? And I said, what to? And it turned out that I had, um, I'd, I'd agreed to speak at a, fr- a fringe meeting that began at 7.30 for breakfast fringe. <laughs> um, and, 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 and I was still in bed at 7.15 and it required a rather, rather rapid, um, uh, uh, rather rapid getting up, getting dressed. And then, um, to make it worse, when I got there, I, uh, I, I thought I must just be chairing it. It turned out I was meant to have um, opinions on, on the subject, <laughs> of which I did not have very many. Um, and that was definitely, it was a very technical, one of those, you know, one of those party conference fringes with very, very technical questions about particular, I think it was something about annuities. I think I had, a similar, not... I had a similar experience. But I don't think I was in bed, but I do remember sort of basically not prepping for a thing thinking I was checking and then I got and I think it was to do with sort of economic regeneration of the um the the motor the from Croydon to the coast or something it was like a very specific part of the southeast with people who had very strong views on exactly where sort of redevelopment money should be spent and I confess you, you yeah. can tell who hasn't um prepped properly at party conference when by the frequency of which they say what you need to do is step back and look at the big picture always the revealing phrase I think we should put this in the broader context of where we are nationally Melanie Reed and James Forsyth then of course you can read them in the Times every week just get yourself a subscription go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times Red Box up next what can go wrong at the party conferences
One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. You're listening to the Red Box Podcast. Now it's time for this. Conference. Party conferences. Yes, we're off to the party conference. But sometimes things can go wrong. I mean, a big speech can make or break a career. We import two-thirds of our cheese. That is a disgrace. I mean, whatever happened to her? Uh, On the subject of speeches, the key thing is don't read just everything on the auto queue. We need to be investing in skills, investing in our young people. And, strong message here, not cutting student numbers. Strong message here indeed. Whatever happened to him? Now, at conference, you often see things that you never want to see, like Matt Hancock singing happy birthday to himself. I once wrote that Matt Hancock had sung Happy Birthday to him and he messaged me and said, that's not true. I did not sing Happy Birthday to myself. So I sent him that video and uh, didn't hear back. Uh, The only thing worse than Matt Hancock singing Happy Birthday to himself is this. Matt Hancock again. Yeah, I'm afraid we're going to have to stop you uh, there. If only if only Matt Hancock had known uh, when to stop and not have himself such a good time. He might not have got himself in all that trouble. Uh, now, you also, at a party conference, you need to be very careful about exactly what you're going to say. The illegal immigrant who cannot be deported because, and I am not making this up, because he had a pet cat. Yeah, the only problem with that was she had made it up. Uh, forget the party conference hall, though. Like the Edinburgh Festival in Claudia Winkleman's forehead, all of the action is on the fringe. But if you are going to spend an hour in a halitosis-riddled meeting room, make sure you get a seat. A couple of years ago, when we were at the uh, Lib Dem conference, I leant against the wall and turned all the lights off. <laughs> but before anyone there could blame it on Brexit, I just used a shoulder blade to turn them all back on again. And that was the most exciting thing that happened in the meeting, which lasted more than an hour. Now, political parties hate fringe meetings, though, because the news there, they cannot control. 
Uh, but plans to divert attention from uh, the fringe meetings rarely work, as the Times' very own Daniel Finkelstein explains. When I was working for Michael Ancrum as the chairman of the Conservative Party, it was decided, I think rather foolishly, we ought to try to distract attention from fringe meetings by holding uh, as a party our own fringe meetings. So uh, a proposal was made that we ought to do a number of things, one of which was going to be a bonfire of regulation to be held on the beach uh, or or, or on the seafront in Bournemouth. Uh, And I I did uh, start by saying that it was a little bit um, difficult because we hadn't actually got any regulations that we decided that we wanted to to get rid of. So what would people actually put on this bonfire of regulations? At which point someone else suggested people could bring regulations and throw them on the fire. I I said, I I don't know about anyone else, but normally when I come to conference, I leave my regulations at home. I didn't think that idea was going to work. At at which point someone chipped in and said uh, that we'd have to make sure people had something for lunch while this bonfire of regulations were going on. And my colleague Rick Nye uh, suggested we have a barbecue of regulations. We proceeded with this idea despite my protest. I had to abandon it in the end because it turned out that having a bonfire of any sort was actually against regulation. You see, st- uh, stunts often don't work. I mean, they can help make the news. Like, I don't know, you send the leader out on a walkabout as long as you don't do it, Neil Kinnock and fall into the sea. In fact, the sea can be perilous uh, when it comes to party conferences. This is Gwaine Towler, a former uh, spinner for UKIP, talking about their conference at Margate. It's 6.30 on one of those beautiful, bright autumn mornings that Margate does so well. I'm standing there waiting for the conference to kick off. And sitting outside the conference hall, with a cigarette and talking to one of the security guards, I noticed some members of Her Majesty's Press Photographers Corps scurrying or flitting or whatever they do in a different direction, running away from the conference centre. This, obviously, is of concern. So I footle down and chase after them. And what do I find? I find, writ large across the beach, in 20-foot-high letters, We Love You, Nige. This has been written by a lovely chap by the name of Sam Gould. And he had done so because the previous day some Greens had scribbled rather ruder words on the beach. And so there he was, having done that, and the snappers were snapping away, and there was this horrible realisation that the tide was coming in and there was no way back. And thus, throwing all caution to the wind, I hootled down down the, the groin to grab hold of the poor blight and hauled him over the over the wall and the and the fence. This was captured and I believe became one of the the photographs of that particular election campaign. Sam Gould, one of the nicest, loveliest and kindest of men, whose natural response to any rudery was to laugh and find some fun way of responding to it, sadly died after a horrible, horrible young cancer. Um, And I can only, I think of him often, one of the funniest, kindest of men. That's Gawain Taller there, former uh, spinner, spin doctor for UKIP. So those are the stunts that party, uh, the parties that might organise a party conference. But there to capture all, you need the snappers, like Stefan Russo, the Press Association's chief political photographer. It's a one time of the year when you have all the politicians in one place and they're kind of 
you've got them captive for about a week in 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 this sort of close confined uh, space of the conference area in the hotel. So we were photographers. We can we can it's kind of like shooting fish in a barrel. They're there in front of us, and you know you're there morning, noon, and night. You're going to see odd things. And I remember um, a few years ago, it was an odd thing because David Miliband, who was foreign secretary at the time, it was lunchtime and all, all the politicians come out of the conference halls and they go for lunch at the various restaurants and cafes around town. And David Miliband was walking down a road. Bizarrely, he got kind of ambushed by the photographers just for a picture of him walking, walking out. He was foreign secretary, but he had a banana in his hand. And he, he raised this banana as if to say, hi, look, you know, here's a banana. I don't know what was going on. And they took this picture and this picture made everywhere the next day. And people were talking about this picture being a disaster for him, a PR disaster. It kind of started his downfall. And yet I honestly, I didn't, didn't see, I couldn't work out why that was so significant. A man holds a banana. I really didn't get it. But those are the sort of silly things. You know, you get this cabin fever and there's this feeding frenzy over anything at party conference. And these things suddenly become huge. I never, I never get it. I'm not sure why. And what are you hoping to find uh, at the, the Labour Party Conference in Brighton or the Tory Party Conference the following week in Manchester? What's the sort of dream photo? Is it sort of socialists drinking champagne? Is it, uh, you know, Boris Johnson zip-wiring into the conference centre? What's your dream photo out of, out of a party conference? Well, I mean, obviously, all those things you get, and all those things got, you know... Every year you get less and less because the PR people realise, oh, we better not do that again. If you remember years ago, Neil Kinnock and his wife walking on the beach in Brighton on the first day of their conference. And he slipped when a big wave caught them and he slipped and he got wet and he had a scramble up the beach. Now, we've never seen a politician go down on the beach since then. <laughs> you know, so those sort of things, um, you get less and less. It gets tighter and more difficult to do so. Honestly, we're lurking around outside the hotel, out the conference centre to get anything. It's difficult to know what you're going to get or what you're going to see. Um, but, you know, the, the bizarre things like I remember a few years ago, Damien McBride, a former advisor to Gordon Brown, was publishing, uh, promoting a book on the seafront in Brighton. And there was a, a protester who used to turn up at all the party conferences. He was quite harmless. He would hold one of his banners for whatever campaign. He, it used to be nuclear power. Um, and he would stand behind whoever we were photographing and sort of ambush the photo call in, in the hope that he'd get in the pictures on the TV. And Damien McBride was on, on breakfast TV live that morning and he stood behind him. And um, um, it was Ian Dale who was um, um, helping promote this book, got into a tussle with him in, behind, behind the cameras. And this fight ensued as the interview was going on. And it was like one of those cartoon fights. You know, when you have this kind of cloud of smoke and arms and legs flying everywhere. This was going on behind the photo call. It was hilarious. It just made great pictures. So those sort of things, you couldn't, you couldn't script. You couldn't, I couldn't say, look, I'm after that picture next week. You have got no idea what's going to happen. And that was one of those b more bizarre moments. Did you take, were you there for um, Ming Campbell pointing down a toilet? <laughs> No, I don't think, no, I don't remember that either. I think that must have been like 2006, <laughs> 2007. They took him to an eco home and oh, yeah. uh, he was just, and it was like a disabled toilet uh, and he was just put, no. all the photos have been pointed out. Anyway, never mind. That's just what, I mean, the other thing I was going to mention is obviously the other thing we're on the lookout for, the only time of the year you see the whole, <laughs> the whole cabinet, or the whole shadow cabinet running. All politicians suddenly seem to become runners in party conference week. 
And so I spent so much time outside. You know, Cameron kind of started it. You'd be there at six in the morning waiting for him to go running. Then Boris goes running. And it's, you know, the, the whole town is just full of MPs running around town. I mean, a Sports Direct must be rammed the week before when they're all buying their, their running gear. Yeah, I'll almost certainly take my money and go and then not go running uh, at party conference. That was uh, Stefan Russo, the chief political uh, photographer for PA. Now, a lot of thought goes into how a politician looks on stage when they're giving their speech. I mean, a lot of thought from the lighting to the slogan to the lecture. And rehearsals take place throughout the week to avoid any mishaps such as when the Lib Dems once opted for a glass lectern and with two glasses of water on it, it cast a shadow still remembered by Nick Clegg's former spin doctor, James McGorry. It looks like uh, Nick was very, very well endowed uh, <laughs> uh, to the people doing the excellent job on the lighting uh, rig. Uh, and so it had to, we had to basically stick a big Lib Dem sign over the front to spare his modesty. So if there's a large party sticker somewhere, you know why. So the big day comes, ready to head out onto the stage, but even at the last moment, things can go wrong. This is Vanessa Pine, who was a press advisor to Joe Swinson. Joe and I were waiting in the wings and the guy with the mic is standing there looking earnestly at her and she's wearing quite a nice bright pink dress that's rather um, figure-hugging and he's looking at her quizzically, not quite sure what to do with the little black box and eventually we realised what we were going to have to do is unzip the back of her dress and hook the the mic on the back of her bra except that he's time is of essence and she's basically standing there half naked in the wings whilst we was then and then the music intro music starts and so there's this frantic faff about getting the dress back on just in the nick of time yeah vanessa also wants to tell me that as conference week approaches all politicians want to get the details right and the amount you agonise over the tiny little details, you know, like whether somebody's wave looks normal. And I mean, there are only a certain number of minutes you can spend thinking about whether a wave looks normal before you've gone completely mad yourself. Uh, that was Vanessa Pine speaking to me on an uh, old edition of the Red Box podcast. Well, it's not just the politicians who can have wardrobe worries. It's important that when you turn up to conference, you make sure you've packed properly. Top advice from Salma Shah, former Tory press officer and later special advisor to Sajid Javid. Normally, when you go to a conference, there is a, a special advisor, long serving, whose name I won't mention, who always sent us a list of things that we would need and things that we should think about. And it ranged from everything like, you know, important numbers saved in our phones, a spare battery charger. And uh, for the ladies, he would always specify to bring a spare pair of tights, which I actually started paying attention to after this um, incident occurred. And I remember this is when I was very young, very junior. We were still in opposition and it was Tory party conference and I was doing the front desk at the press office. And that involves standing in a makeshift stand and trying to get people interested in the press releases, uh, which nobody ever was. And I had snagged my tights on, uh, I don't know, one of the nails or something that was sticking out. I'd asked a friend as she was nipping to the supermarket to go and get me a pair of tights, of course, I'm Asian, Southeast Asian heritage, and I'm actually relatively short and she's English and actually quite uh, tall and quite leggy. So she bought a pair of tights that would suit her and not me. (laughs) I ended up being two different colours that conference (laughs) with white legs that uh, with tights that didn't actually fit me so that I was rocking a whole Nora Batty look. So I think the um, lesson for me there is to 
always ensure that you bring uh, a spare pair of tights that actually fit you. Salma Shah there on the fashion disasters that you can face when you're at party comments. I'll make sure I pack a spare pair of tights. So once you're dressed and rehearsed, all you have to do is go out there and deliver the speech you planned and hope that nobody upstages you. Well, Carolyn Lottin uh, was a segment producer at Bloomberg TV at the Labour conference in 2006, Tony Blair's last conference as Labour leader. On the Monday afternoon, Gordon Brown walked to the podium to give his big speech as Chancellor. At that precise moment, Carolyn was making her way through the exhibition centre to the auditorium when she spotted a familiar face coming the other way. Suddenly I noticed um, Cherie Blair, an entourage, coming towards me. And there were no, not many people left anymore because people had gone inside the auditorium to listen to Gordon Brown. Um, but she was coming straight towards me and there were TVs everywhere with this, you know, showing the speech. And just as he said... I've worked with Tony Blair for almost 10 years as Chancellor. It's the longest relationship of any Prime Minister in Chancellor in modern British history. And it has been a privilege for me to work with and for the most successful Labour Prime Minister. She kind of did an offhand remark, and went, oh, that's a lie. I couldn't believe it. You know, I, there was a guy, one guy still left at one of the exhibition stands. And he also heard it, I think. And we kind of looked at each other going, oh, can't believe she just said that. I mean, she didn't stop. She literally just walked straight past me. How did these four words, well, that's a lie, get out and explode the Labour Party conference? Well, I, I think I was probably a little bit naive. So I then found, um, went to where um, all of the Bloomberg news reporters, the Wire reporters were sitting um, particularly Rob Hutton, who was obviously our Westminster reporter um, at the time. And I, he was listening to the speech, so wasn't really paying much attention to me. But I, I thought it was more of a funny little anecdote. So I said, oh, you're never going to believe what I just heard, what just happened. You know, Cherie Blair was, was, was coming towards me. And I heard her say, well, that's a lie when he talked about Tony Blair. And Rob kind of looked at me, but then was like, oh, I'll continue writing. Um, and then, you know, we sat there, listened for a little bit. And then I had to go back actually before the speech finished because we had to then get back live um, to do the analysis of the speech. So I headed back outside the anchor and found my guests to analyze what Gordon Brown had been saying. So uh, unbeknownst to me, actually, they had then started, they, they decided to put out a story with this little snippet. And suddenly somebody said, oh, there's Sky News are looking for you. I was like, why are they looking for me? He said, yeah, they want to talk about the Cherie Blair thing. They've got a camera crew here. At that point, it all became suddenly really serious. And actually, um, and they had one of those roaming camera crews, I think, where they could have gone live wherever they were. Um, so actually, my, my, my senior producer, she kind of pulled me behind one of those advertising um, kind of hoardings. And we, we literally hid for a little bit from the Sky crew because we just, you know, I had no idea what was going on. It all just had just blown up while I was running around and it really did blow up and downing street denied it sheree blair in the end said honestly guys i hate to spoil your story but i didn't say it and i don't believe it either because this was tony blair's last party conference it was the last one before gordon brown became prime minister it was such a turbulent time gordon brown was being accused of sort of undermined tony blair oust him from from number 10 obviously for years and years and years there'd been sort of off the record reports of the tensions between uh, Gordon Brown and Tony Blair. But what you'd got was you'd got someone right in the heart of it, Shui Blair, confirming all of that. Uh, what was the fallout? What was what was the uh, what was the backlash from Downing Street like? You know, I actually was very protected from that because I never had any um, contact with them, really. So I think Rob got um, got like one phone call from them 
kind of shouting at him going this is not true this is not true but you know we we all stuck by the story and I think um what was quite funny they then changed the story saying oh well she was there but she didn't say that's a lie I think they were saying can can I get by um so there are all these like funny um for stories coming out that they were um you know saying yeah she definitely said something but she definitely didn't say that's a lie so I think the the good thing well for, for us for, for my point of view is that obviously everybody believed me just one of them 15 years on from all of that you've still got the, no doubt at all about what it was she said absolutely not that's Carolyn Lottin there, who worked for Bloomberg TV and overheard uh, Cherie Blair at that big... Co- it was my first uh, Labour conference I went to. And it was such a massive story, that. Uh, well, sometimes the person delivering the speech has no one else to blame when things go wrong. This is Patrick Hennessy, former spin doctor for Ed Miliband and later Sadiq Khan. As a conference disaster, nothing really comes close to my experience as Labour's Deputy Director of Comms in 2014 in Manchester, when Ed Miliband, our dear leader and Prime Minister-in-waiting, we hoped, forgot a key section of his leader's speech, the bit about the economy. I can well remember the rising panic backstage when the full horror of what had happened dawned on us. For some reason, a number of my senior colleagues were unavailable and it fell to me to deliver the post-speech briefing to the masked ranks of political journalists. We looked around for someone to blame for the disaster and alighted on the obvious person, Ed himself. In an effort to match the then Prime Minister David Cameron, Ed had vowed to memorise his entire speech and not rely on an autocue. But I will always remember. Only he hadn't memorised it all. He forgot all about the economy. It was a gift for the Tories, and the lobby was in full cry. It was the second time in a few months I'd had to brief political journalists in the immediate aftermath of an unfortunate event. In the previous case, Ed's legendary efforts to get the better of a bacon sandwich. In such circumstances, there is little you can do except throw yourself on the mercy of the lobby and hope the resulting coverage is not too hideous. Some hope. I'm sometimes asked, how on earth can politicians memorise those long speeches? Well, in Ed's case, at least the answer is clear. He couldn't. Sorry, Ed. I've known Patrick for a long time and uh, I'm very cl- glad we've managed to put him to sea, agree. Uh, but sometimes no amount of preparation is enough. No amount of hoping that nobody will notice. No amount of crossing your fingers and hoping for the best will stop things going spectacularly wrong. Paul Harrison was Theresa May's press secretary from 2017 and 2019. And he still has nightmares about that speech at that conference in 2017. My story is about why sometimes what happens at conference really doesn't stay there. Theresa May's second party conference as Prime Minister is probably the one that we all remember, and we remember it for all the wrong reasons. Uh, It was when under quite a lot of pressure on Brexit and having gone backwards in uh, in that 2017 election. We arrived at conference trying to gather a bit of momentum, really. And during the speech, which at the Tory conference is always the last thing, the Prime Minister's speech is the last thing of, of the whole week, uh, just everything went wrong. Some so-called comedian presented uh, Theresa with a, a fake P45, I was, I was about to talk about somebody I'd like to give a P45 to, and that's Jeremy Corbyn. Yeah! 
She subsequently lost her voice. <coughs> Public sector working together. Why, <coughs> why we will never... <coughs> and we... <coughs> A bit of the stage fell down and that kind of spectacle, sadly, and, and through absolutely no fault of her own, kind of uh, became, I suppose, something of a metaphor. But anyway, unlike lots of people's conference, unfortunate events or moments of regret, it was by that stage, obviously the highest profile thing of, of the whole event. Everybody saw it, everybody remembered it. And it ended up overshadowing a speech that actually was very personal. And you know, one of the things I'd had to do and that the press secretary always has to do uh, for any prime minister is give a briefing last thing after the final speech to all of the political journalists that have made the trip to to that party conference and I was a little bit nervous it was the first one I'd ever done and I'd kind of memorized a series of points that had that Theresa had, had, had made in the speech that I wanted to highlight for journalists on the basis of the fact that I hoped that, that might inform a bit of their coverage the next day and you know some of it was quite personal the way we weren't really used to seeing from her there was a reference to the fact that you know she and Philip had never been able to have children and how she regretted that and it was quite a brave and quite an emotive speech but of course we don't remember any of it and having memorized all of these things as, as the speech went on as the stage fell down after the p45 had been presented and clearly that the pm had struggled with her voice it just became clear that that none of that was kind of appropriate so as i shuffled out to do my briefing knowing that this is going to be a pretty sporty 45 minutes front of 60 eager hat I, I just remember quite vividly saying greater manchester police have made an arrest for a breach of the peace and then i'll take your questions and that was it sometimes what happens at conference really doesn't just stay there Oh, I can't wait. <laughs> uh, all being well, uh, next week and the week after, we'll provide some other stories that can join that. I think we'll describe that as an oral history of things that can go wrong at party conferences. That's all we've got time for on this episode of the Red Box Podcast. Don't forget you can listen to me live Monday to Friday, 10 till 1 on Times Radio. We bring you the best bits here on the podcast. And if you're feeling particularly nice, why not wait and review us wherever you get your podcasts from. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. The secret to visibly firmer, summer-ready skin is here. Osea's number one best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil. Clinically proven to instantly improve skin elasticity and transform dull, dry skin to silky, soft, and unbelievably glowing. Rich yet never greasy, Andaria Algae Body Oil is formulated with sustainably sourced seaweed to help replenish the skin's moisture barrier and seven nourishing active botanical oils for results you can see and feel all over. The best part? It's signature scent. A blend of freshly squeezed grapefruit, cypress, and mango mandarin transports you to sun-kissed summer days. This all-natural scent is unforgettable. Everything Osea makes is clean, vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Get healthy, glowing skin for summer with clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code GLOW at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A-Malibu.com code GLOW.